we're we're in a series uh, woven looking at big ideas, big themes that start on page one and they go all the way through to the very last page. But they all point to Jesus. They're all about Jesus. They're all getting to him. And we're sort of seeing these um, common threads. We're seeing overlap as we go, as we've talked about you know, covenants, or we've talked about uh, laws, or we've talked about sacrifice, or, or uh, all these different themes. And so tonight I want to look at um, a theme that is Messiah. This idea of Messiah. And again, start from, well, not page one, page three, really, because that's kind of where this first idea is introduced and, and trace it all the way through to the end. But again, ultimately landing on the person of Jesus. As we think about the biblical story, it begins in a way that let me let me give you a title of a book. There's a, a book by the name um, of a guy. Uh, the name of the guy is um, Cornelius Plantinga. Junior, he uh, he's got a Ph.D. from Princeton Theological Seminary, bright, bright guy. And he wrote a book with a title that I think gets at our experience of human life. And the name of his book is not the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> it's just as simple as that. And the subtitle is something like, you know, a reader on this idea of sin in the Bible. How do we not the way it's supposed to be? And that's how we experience life, isn't it? In relationships, in our vocation. In in everything that we put our hand to or engage in, we always have the sense of this is not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be different. It's supposed to be right. But this is somehow broken. Well, page one of this story, we see this God who creates the world out of this chaos. He's this sort of royal artist. And he speaks and brings about this fabulous world and creation and makes it the way it's supposed to be. And then he places these two creatures in this idyllic situation, what's called a garden. And he he tells them, I want you to rule which he, he uses king and queen language. He uses royal language. So they're not mere managers. They're sort of sub-creators, sub-rulers with this God. And so, um, and if you want to follow along in your outline, we're going to go through about seven or eight different kind of themes or ideas as we trace this concept of Messiah. Um, and the first one, this, the, the plot tension... Driving the whole Bible starts here. <laughs> um, it starts with this mysterious talking snake that gets humans to doubt God's goodness and uh, disobey. So what we have in this story is in this idyllic garden, they're, they're told to subdue, to rule, to engage, to take in. That this world is packed with possibility. And they, they need to bring that possibility to reality. That's, that's the language of saying subdue it, cultivate. That, and that word is all those, all those different ideas. But he says there's, there's one tree in the garden which you are not to eat from um, simply because uh, it's dangerous and it will kill you if you do. Um, and so it's pretty simple, right? Trust me, trust that I have your best intentions in mind, even though you don't, under, you don't have full understanding. But trust that I have your best intentions in mind. Now, in the garden, though, there's also this um, 
interesting thing. There's, there's this creature there. It's an odd creature. It's strange, really, isn't it? When you read it, there's this talking snake. And it's telling a different story to these two creatures, Adam and Eve, in the garden. And it's telling a different story. It says, if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, you're going to become like God. And so the real reason God said no to that is because he's holding something good back from you. He doesn't really have your best intentions in mind. There's something good behind the curtain he doesn't want you to have. He's sort of holding it to himself. He's selfish, really, is what it is. And so uh, that, that's the reason. And, and Adam and Eve, uh, they believe the snake and they, they take the fruit and they eat it. And because of that, the, that original, oh, I just realized that's kind of like not full full thing there, is it? Um, how come you didn't tell me that? You guys can talk to me, you know. Okay, here we go. Is that better? That's a little larger. Sorry. Just interrupt me if I'm doing something dumb. Um, and so Adam and Eve, they, they take of the fruit and all, the, all of that original goodness in the garden that was there, the beauty, it's uh, evil and death enter in. And the ripples of that one decision affect everything. It affects their relationship with each other. It affects their relationship with, well, it starts with their relationship with God. It affects their relationship with each other. It affects their relation to the world, the physical uh, world itself. We're told all of a sudden now, uh, labor, which was done before and it was wonderful and good and pleasing. Now there's something called toil. <laughs> That's it. You remember what that, you experienced that about probably an hour ago. Uh, now toil is added to the labor. Now shame is added to the relationship. And so there's this, this breakdown of everything that, that was good. On a side note, one thing I've been trying to do um, is in, uh, engage with you guys in some questions I had given that, that text number. And so certain questions have come in. And, and there were two that kind of lined up with this, so I wanted to uh, address those tonight. The first question that, that someone had texted in was why did God make sin possible? Um, and so I want to try to just give brief answers to these here on different weeks as we go. Love is the greatest good. And not too many people dispute that idea. Love is the greatest good. In order to have love freely given, not compelled, but freely given, you have to have the possibility of not giving that love of hatred, of rejection, of rebellion. So to say um, sin didn't have to be necessary, the possibility of sin had to be necessary in order for there to be love freely offered and freely received. And of course, that's the picture we get is God says, I want to be in a loving relationship with you that is not compelled. It's freely offered and freely received. Um, second Part of that question was, uh, why do we have organs and body parts that, that fail if we are his special children? Why didn't God make us perfect? And what we see, and this is why going back to Genesis is always so important. Everything that happens in the rest of the Bible starts on page one, two, or three. It really does. See, God's original design for humanity, it was perfectly ordered. 
Everything was set in place. That's, this is what's described that there's this dark, watery chaos at the beginning. And God orders everything right. There's, there's a right order to creation. And so uh, this idea of um, humanity's rebellion uh, is what brings in death, what brings in decay. And that's what enters into God's created Order. So God did create original humanity rightly ordered. It's sin that has corrupted, corroded, uh, perverted the original good design. And then another question that, that came in was, uh, what exactly is the nature of this first sin? Like, what, what does it mean when it says, uh, what does taking the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil like, what is that? Is it just fruit? Like, what's... No, it's not. There's nothing, nothing evil about any material thing. There's nothing wrong about a fruit. It's the idea of this, and this is what's hinted at when he says uh, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not just knowing good and evil. It's the idea of defining what is good and what is evil. The idea of, I don't want to live by God's created order. I mean, God has created categories, truths. And I want to define my own categories. Um, let me give you, let me give you a, a kind of contemporary example of that. I was reading, there was an ABC uh, article, uh, ABC News article about uh, Facebook. This was released just a couple weeks ago. Uh, Russell Goldman wrote this article. And it, it talked about how, how Facebook, up until recently here, has only had two options for identifying your gender if you have a profile on Facebook. Two uh, options, male and female, um, that the idea that it reflected this is the created order of humanity. And what they've, what they've said is that um, they wanted to introduce a new way now so that people can select a custom gender option. And it said uh, Facebook hasn't released a full exhaustive list, but according to the ABC News article, there were 58 gender options given for people who have profiles. Um, and again, and I don't say this in a, in a demeaning way. We want to be always... Always, care. There are people who this is very central to their lives, their identity. We want to be careful and sensitive to that. We're just talking about the reality of this tendency, and it's within me, it's within you. And so um, identifying self with things like gender fluid, gender nonconforming, uh, gender questioning, intersex, non-binary, pan-gender, trans person, trans-feminine... Tra- 58 different options and see to me when I read that I thought that's my heart that's your heart the human heart is to say I want to define reality I want to define myself and the idea of there being a created order that God forces me to fit into we all recoil because of something in our hearts sin we all recoil against it. I want you to define myself. I want to be the captain of my own destiny. Doesn't that sound like a good American value? Well, that's a, that's a value of Genesis 3, of page 3 of the sin. That's the nature of the human heart, is to try to define oneself. So, back to the point here. Why is there a talking snake? Have you ever wondered that? Why, why is there a talking snake in the garden? Like, how did it get there? What's it doing there? Why? The Bible doesn't tell us 
how it got there. Um, it just presents the snake as a creature, so created by a creature, which is in rebellion against God and is trying to also lead people into a rebellion against this God, to go to doubt God's goodness and move them in this path toward death. That's how the author is presenting this creature in rebellion against God. Gives no other details to it besides that. But it says that this, this creature, this snake, is the source of all that is evil and wrong with our world. And then as the story goes on, he says, and it still is today. Listen, listen to Jesus' comments about this being in John 8, 44. He's, he's talking to people who are opposing his kingdom message. And he says, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. And then he says, he, this creature, was a murderer from the beginning. Meaning he was leading, he brought death into the world, leading Adam and Eve to death. Not holding to the truth. We see him being deceptive and lying. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, Jesus says, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of all lies. Now, uh, l- later biblical authors use words to describe. Let me give you a few different words that are used to refer to this being all throughout scripture. One is the Satan. Uh, that's, that's not an English word. We kind of transliterate it. But the Satan just means the adversary, someone who is opposed to you. Mark 4.15 uses this word. Um, Jesus says, some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. This is talking about people who hear about this kingdom message. As soon as they hear it, the Satan, the adversary, comes and takes away that word that was sown in them. So Jesus uses that picture. He's opposed to People, he is opposed to God's purpose. Another word that is used in scripture for this being is the devil. Devil just means the accuser. Ephesians 6.11 uses this word. It says, put on the full armor of God, Paul says, so that you can take your stand against the accuser's schemes. So his schemes would have something to do with accusations, apparently. Um, or James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves unto God, resist the devil or the accuser, and he will flee from you. Uh, third words, that, that third title that's used in scripture is the evil one. The evil one. Second uh, Thessalonians 3 says this, uh, and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people. For not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. So his purposes are for evil. Um, another title that's used is the tempter. The tempter. First Thessalonians 3, 5 says, For this reason, when I could no longer stand it, Paul writes, I sent to find out about your faith. He was worried about, have, have you kind of shipwrecked your faith and that sort of thing. He says, I was afraid that some way the tempter, is the word he uses, had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. And then the final kind of title or idea that's used about this being is in some way he is a ruler in this world. Uh, John 16, 7, Jesus is talking about leaving his disciples and sending the Holy Spirit. He calls the Holy Spirit another advocate. He says, unless I go away, the advocate, meaning the Holy Spirit, will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong. He says about a couple things, but he says, one thing he will prove the world to be wrong about is about judgment because 
the prince of this world, he says, now stands condemned. And in other places refers to him as being this sort of uh, ruler, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that that sort of thing. Revelation 12, 9, it brings almost all of these pictures together. And and the author of of Revelation kind of says, you know, referring to this one in his destruction. Revelation 12, 9, he says, the great dragon it's is pictured if you read it in context it's to using uh, illustration analogy and so forth uh, the great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil that means accuser or the Satan the adversary who leads the whole world astray that's the evil one who is tempting he was hurled down to the earth and his angels with him so this weird creature this snake that we get in the beginning we're given no context for we understand as the story goes along who this creature is um, but there is some hope okay it's not it's not left at this place where the world is just absolutely abandoned and broken and messed up god makes a promise to adam and Eve and this promise basically he says to them that God promises that a descendant a descendant will come from the line of the woman who rebelled their Eve and it will destroy the snake while also himself though suffering a fatal wound in the process of this of this great sort of combat between the two this is this might be a little light I realized once I got it up here it was kind of light so it might be hard to see but this is the promise that's given. Like I said, it's vague. We're not really sure what it means. But the woman is told, you will have a zera, which just means offspring or seed. Okay? You're going to have an offspring out of you. And this, this offspring is, um, there's a little ambiguity here too. Because offspring, just like in English, can mean uh, one person. Or it can mean like a group of people, like all your family members. And so it's vague there, too. Like, is he talking about this whole people group? Is he talking about one particular offspring? It's, it's just vague. But God promises to, to create somehow this offspring, to bring them about and to fix these things. And uh, Genesis 3.15 describes this battle between the offspring and the snake says this, Genesis uh, 3.15, I will put enmity, uh, God's speaking to, to this evil creature, the snake. And I will put enmity between you, the snake, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And then here's this statement. This is a loaded statement here. He will crush your head and you he will strike his heel. And it's the exact same word for both, the, that strike and crush. They're both going to be fatal blows that are going to be done. Um, there's a big theological word, okay, like bring this up at like you know, the next cocktail party you're at and you'll sound really intelligent. Um, Proto-evangelion. That's, that's the word written in your, in your little bullet, bullet in there. And if you kind of break it apart, you can kind of figure out proto. That means like first. Uh, evangel is the same word as gospel. It's the first appearance of the gospel. The first echo is very, very vague, <laughs> but the proto-evangelion, the very first appearance of this gospel, the gospel having something to do with how God's going to fix all this stuff that's messed up and broken, is right here on page three, um, where Jesus says, I'm sorry, where God says to the snake uh, that there is going to be this great battle 
uh, Justin Martyr, he was an early church father, like in about 160 A.D., um, he, he called this the first messianic, that's what we're looking at today, messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. It's the first time that there's just an inkling of a messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. Um, there was a direct reference, uh, just kind of a popular culture example. If you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ, Mel, Gibson, Mel Gibson's film, in the beginning of the film where the character of Jesus is in the garden and he's praying, and when he gets done praying, he gets up and there's been the snake that's slowly coming into the garden, and he stomps on the snake's head. It, that was this direct allusion to this concept of what God was doing through Christ, that he was going back to this cosmic battle of the seed and the snake. Is what he was referring to there. Um, and so this passage reveals that there's now this cosmic struggle between humanity and the snake, the serpent. Um, but this, this beautiful promise, it just sort of hangs there unresolved after page three, like page four, page five, page it's nothing talking about it. It's just unresolved. And we don't hear anything about it. Um, until we get to, there's this guy named Abraham. And this gets to uh, point three here. The story of Genesis traces this idea, that original promise, and we, know, we don't hear anything about it again until we get to this guy named Abraham. And um, Abraham is basically uh, promised using that exact same word and language. We don't hear Zeta until we get to here again. But he says, you know, that... That seed thing I talked about, that's, you know, um, I'm going to, through you, Abraham, bring that seed through. You're the, you're the one somehow that it's going to come through. And so um, it's first promised to him in uh, chapter 12. Let me just read a couple of these passages where God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you, but you're just the vehicle. Because through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. I'm going to bring that blessing back that was lost in the garden. I'm going, to, I'm going to do it through your family. So Genesis, let me just read a couple passages real fast. Genesis 18, 18. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. So Eve's promise is somehow going to come through Abraham. Uh, later, God specifies how. He's going to bless the world. In uh, Genesis 22:18, says, And through your Zeta, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Genesis 26:4, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and give them all the lands. And through your Zeta, all nations of earth will be blessed. Genesis 28:14, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. They will be spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through your Zeta, through your offspring. So obviously, Abraham understands this has something to do with that first declaration of God's going to fix the rest of the world. And I don't yet know how. And again, uh, as we noted earlier, the story doesn't clarify. Is it one person? Is, it a, is this a whole group of people? Is it a family? We have to keep reading in the story. And so this goes on. And uh, the story of Genesis traces the promised line of Abraham to his great grandson. It goes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob's got 12 boys. And one of these boys in particular is named Judah. And... Uh, Jacob, Judah's dad, he's old. Uh, obviously, he wasn't the seed because he's kind of 
uh, as the text says, pull his feet up on his bed and die here shortly. And he brings his boys in to kind of give them a final blessing. And he also makes these sort of evaluations that they're, they're almost um, tragic at some at some. He brings them in and he says, uh, let me give blessings to you all before I die. But let me also make some evaluations on the on the men that you become. And they're not all glowing at all. But when he gets to Judah, he uh, in Genesis 49, 8. Listen to this promise that he that he gives to Judah. I'm just going to read some of these passages. It says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. So what he just said in verse 8 there is that you will be the most eminent among the 12 tribes. Verse 9, you are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. So his tribe will be aggressive. He learns he will. They will be victorious like a lion. Verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nation shall be his. So what he says there is that Judah will become the tribe through which the royal leaders will be. That's that whole scepter idea. So it's going to be your seed that's going to be this royal kind of king place. And a specific royal descendant is coming who will inherit Abraham's promise of all nations thing. That whole everyone. And then finally, verse 11 and 12, he says, uh, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branches. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine. His teeth will be whiter than milk. What he's saying is that the king's reign is going to uh, bring about a restoration of the garden. There's wine there and there's milk and there's plenty and there's bounty. And he's speaking to a desert people. <laughs> this, is, this is a promise that through you, God, through this one, he's going to restore abundance and so what, what we see here is the woman traced to Abraham, the seed, now traced to Judah. And this Zeta, this offspring, is going to be somewhere beyond him. And the first guy we meet, as we go through the story in the line of Judah, who becomes a king, is this guy David. King David. Um, and the story of the Old Testament traced him. Now, may, maybe... Maybe David is the Zeta. Maybe, maybe he's the offspring. Maybe he's the snake crusher. Could it be? You know, will he finally crush the snake? The problem is, it turns out that David is infected with the same evil, darn it, <laughs> that the rest of humanity has. He is just as broken. It's not just that he doesn't defeat the snake. He gives in to the snake constantly. And you read his life and it's just scattered with garbage. Uh, it's it's the result of sin, and he gives way to that. But nevertheless, God makes a promise to David. He says that he would become the head of a royal line that will last forever. And God promises to raise up a specific Zeta or offspring from David's line who will build a temple and who will rule as God's son. Now that introduces a whole new concept of this will somehow be, he will be in a role of a son-father relationship to Yahweh, the God of Israel. <clears throat> and so 2 Samuel 
seven eleven. I'll just read a, a verse or two here. He says, the Lord declares uh, to you that the Lord himself will establish your house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up yours. Zeta. He used the same word. I will raise up your offspring, your own flesh and blood, establish his kingdom. Uh, I'll be his, uh, his father. And he says kind of some interesting things. Um, he says this, I will be his father. He will be my son. It says, now when he goes wrong... I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, meaning I'll use other people to punish them if they disobey, if your descendants disobey, with floggings inflicted by human hands. We'll get to when that happens here. But my love will never be taken away from I'll discipline him, but it doesn't mean I've rejected him. But his, uh, his throne will stand forever. And so David figures out, okay, there's someone coming after him. The promise, the Zed of the offspring is going to be through him. Somehow, and the book of Psalms, if you go, I I listed a number of Psalms in your outline under this point. The the book of Psalms, many times uh, what are called messianic Psalms, they're these poems reflecting on these promises that are somehow through David's line that have to to do with royalty and bringing justice. and, and And they're reflecting on how is God going to do this in this world. But we know that um uh, the future king will be from the line of David. God's promise to Abraham will be fulfilled through this future king. The future king will establish God's eternal kingdom over all nations. Do you see how this resume is building? Whoever this Zed is, we're kind of learning. Their, their resume is getting fatter. Like whoever can do this, it's, it's more specific all the time. It's filling out who is this person or group of people who is going to do this. And it seems to be narrowing down to maybe an individual instead of just a, a group now. And so which one of David's sons will do this? Well, of course, the problem is that as you go in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just chumps. They just screw up again and again. And they, they give in to the snake. They go after sex and they go after money and they go after abuses of power. And they worship other gods. They choose evil. And it gets so, so bad that God actually, remember what he promised? He said, forever, I'll love them, but I'll use other people to discipline them if necessary. And so he brings in this foreign, evil, horrible nation, Babylon. He brings them in and wipes out Jerusalem, wipes out Israel. And um, God uses this giant empire and he uh, takes them into exile in Babylon. They have to leave the place where they were. There's no more throne, which means there's no more king. The seed's broken. The return of the king can't happen. It it, it seems to be a complete tragedy. And then over these next 400 years or a little more, it's again, it's it's almost silent. But before they go into these 400 years times, there's these strange group of guys. They're called the prophets. And these guys, these prophets keep talking about this coming king. They keep reminding the people that he will come, he will defeat evil, he will defeat the snake, he will restore the garden. One prophet in particular, this guy Isaiah, tells us more about why this king has to be bitten. 
by the snake because that seems odd. It seems people kind of lose that over time and they just think of a conqueror, but they forget about this. He's a conqueror who's bitten somehow in this fatal bite. And so um, this, this prophet Isaiah, he, he writes about this idea and he talks about the whole line, the seed. This is like entrenched in his mind, this picture. And he gives us more definition about this vague character, royal character, than others. He says that the king will bring all nations into this future uh, kingdom of peace. He says he will be from the line of David. He will bring justice, full restoration of God's world. However, he would come as, and this is something that was very unique. It was developed a lot more by him. It's about that bite. He will be a suffering servant. He's bringing back up the bite. He's going to be struck by the snake, and it will be in some way fatal. He would be rejected, he says, by his own people. That seems odd. That's what they've been looking forward to the whole time. Why would they reject the one they've looked forward to? And he would bear the consequences for Israel's evil and rejection and rebellion. And he would die for the sins of his people. However, this king will come back from death, Isaiah says, and he will offer forgiveness. He will offer healing, a new life to others. And finally, something to the serpent, he says. Listen to Isaiah 65, 25. It's a passage you've probably heard before. It's on like Christmas cards at times, and it's a cute little picture and that sort of thing. We oftentimes read it as the lion and the lamb. It's actually the wolf and the lamb, but wolf sounds kind of creepy, so we change it and say lion. Um, Isaiah 65, 25 says, this is speaking of that day, what life will be like when this seed finally comes in and brings restoration of all things. He says the wolf will and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Now listen to this statement. And dust will be the serpent's food. That's alluding back to page three. Dust will be the serpent's food. Because remember, the the condemnation to Satan was you will eat dust on the ground. It doesn't literally mean you're going to eat dust. Eating dust is a picture of absolute being put down, uh, being, being worthless, losing. And so he says, when this happens, finally... The serpent will be done with. He will be defeated. And Isaiah says it is precisely because this suffering servant, this seed, because he suffered that, uh, that from this snake that, and that he can come back, that he can become the source of life for everyone like David and Judah and Abraham who were infected with this same thing here. Now, the Old Testament ends, and this snake-crushing king never shows up. (laughs) And people are just waiting. When is the snake-crushing king going to be there? Now, all of a sudden, in the New Testament, this guy Jesus shows up. What's what's the, the first thing we learn about Jesus? Well, if you go to two of the four Gospels, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and Luke both have one thing in common. They start their their uh, gospels with a long list that you probably skip over every time you open it up, right? Because why would you want to read a bunch of names that are half of them are hard to pronounce, right? Why does he start with a genealogy? Why does Matthew care about a genealogy? Why, why does Luke care about a genealogy? Well, because the seed, this is important. Whoever this one is, he has to be the, the seta of David, 
of Judah, of Abraham, and even of, of the woman of Adam and Eve themselves. And so Jesus arrives, and right away we see the Messiah, um, Jesus, claiming to play this role of Messiah with his people. And he does two things, primarily. One, he, he announces God's kingdom. Um, next week we're going to be talking about this idea of the gospel of the kingdom and what does that mean. We hear that a lot. What's his concept? They do the same thing, kind of trace through it. But what, what Jesus says, what he says more than anything else, or when any one of the biblical authors wanted to summarize, what did Jesus talk about? Like if you ran into Jesus on a, on a, on a day, what would you likely hear him talk about? This thing right here called the kingdom of God or the rule of God. And again, we'll kind of tease it out a little bit more <clears throat> next week. But see, he's announcing God's kingdom is here because he's saying people who have been in slavery, in, in uh, spiritual sickness, um, are, are now being freed. Slavery and death, people who are stuck in that are being freed. So that's, that's God's kingdom. And then secondly is he's challenging the snake's power at every turn. Um, every time Jesus... When, when Jesus uh, engages with people, talks with people, um, an exorcism, a healing, uh, offering forgiveness to someone, all these things are challenges to the snake's power. Because those are all the things that were brought into, introduced into this world through the snake and through that original rebellion. But Jesus starts telling his followers that he's going to become king by being struck by the snake, by taking the full effect of the snake into himself, evil. And so that's exactly what we see. This is that last point on the cross. Jesus received the fatal wound from the snake on behalf of humanity. And it seems like this is like a Shakespearean tragedy. It seems like... Oh, this is a true tragedy. There's no good to this. There is all this promise and it's broken and it's over. And it would be except for, uh, of course, that movie that we saw last week. We remember this thing that people were so perplexed by that no one could quite figure. No one saw coming. It looked like the snake had won to all of his followers. And yet there's this thing on the third day that we'll be celebrating here in a few weeks. This empty tomb experience found by these women who are utterly confused, who tell the men who are even more confused and disbelieving than they are. And Jesus rises from the dead. But what's so unique about this is he, he went into death. And there's, there's certain language in the New Testament that talks about Jesus disarming the powers of evil. That's what this means. He disarmed the power of the snake by going into it fully and coming out of it. And so he comes out of it um, with the power over evil and death now. And this is really the best part of it. For followers of Jesus, for, for those of us who tether ourselves to this seed, this man, this Messiah, this God-man, Jesus. He gives his followers something that differs from all other religion. Every other religion tends to lean toward moral conformity. Clean yourself up. You might have grown up in a church where you kind of heard that message, right? Fix yourself up. God will smile a little bigger. This gospel thing is so, so different than that. It says uh, you're infected. 
You'll never clean yourself up. Your heart is so broken and messed up, you don't even know how broken it is. But this, this person, Jesus, has the ability to come into your life and to give you new life source. And it's his own life source. It's a foreign life source. It's his. And this spirit that he's going to send that he talks about is going to do this work inside you. From He's doing the work. You're simply submitting to the process. You're submitting to the procedures. You're putting yourself in a place where... Where the master, the master craftsman can work on you, the apprentice. Um, and let me say one thing here about, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about Satan, the devil, and, and it can be kind of a, what is it? It's an ominous topic. It's, a, it's something that's not like fun to talk about really, I don't think. Um, as Christians, those of you who have tethered yourself to Jesus, we have to have a right biblical understanding of this whole idea of Satan and his role and who we are. And what I'm talking about is fear. It's completely unfounded for a follower of Jesus to be fearful of Satan in any way. On the cross, Jesus, the seed of Messiah, won the decisive victory over Satan through his death and through his resurrection. And the devil is destined for destruction, even though he assaults God's people now, but in vain. And while we have to be aware of the kinds of threats that he is to us, because he is a very real threat, we must never fear him if we are in Christ. Um, Jesus, moreover, he calls us to fight against Satan through things like prayer, through evangelism, through sound biblical thinking, taking every thought captive and that sort of thing. Listen to, listen to Jesus in, in Luke 10. He had sent out a group of his followers. Uh, you know, he had the three, remember, and he had the 12, and he also had the 72. And he sent out the 72 in his name to do things. And they come back, and they're kind of like surprised at what happened. And what they say to, to him is when they returned, said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. They realized that they had this, like, interaction, with, and there, there was, like, spiritual realities, things going on. And Jesus replies, almost like an offhanded, you know, thing. He goes, yeah, I saw, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's sort of like, oh, yeah, yeah, I saw, I saw when Satan fell. He said, I have given you authority to trample on snakes, scorpions, to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. First Peter 5.8, Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, said, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But he says, that's not the end of it. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And Paul in Romans 16.20, when he's writing to this church, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And then he says, May the grace of our Lord, that means King Jesus, be with you. As believers, we live in this reality. C.S. Lewis said there's two dangers. One is to say, ah, there's no Satan at all. It's all baloney. It's, that's dangerous because then you're not aware to the ways in which he impacts our thinking and our minds. So that's right. The other is to, is to give Satan more power than he deserves and think there's a devil behind every bush. And you over-spiritualize every, you know, your car breaks down and, oh, Satan's trying to get me. 
you know, that sort of thing, but, um, versus he didn't take it in to get the oil changed. So there's two extremes. The biblical view is to say there's a real enemy. I don't deal with him. I don't engage with him. I don't rebuke him. I stand in the one named Jesus who has conquered him, and he does those things. And so I don't live in a sense of fear for what can man do to me. Because I have the one who, who overcame the final weapon of the snake. Final weapon of the snake is death. <laughs> he overcame it. That's what, remember that movie last week, you know, when these, these early followers see Jesus resurrected and pe- people scratch their head when they're not afraid of death anymore? Why wouldn't you be afraid of death? Well, because I know that's not the end. Until now, people have kind of thought that was the end. But no, I've, I've seen what comes after that. I want our ushers to um, come forward because I want us to do something, celebrate something with a, with a piece of bread and a cup of juice. And what I want us to remember is that those of us who have tethered ourselves to Jesus as his apprentice, that when we do this, what we are doing is declaring that we are a people who trust in Jesus' death in his resurrection for us and that we so to speak we've died with jesus and we've been raised to new life with jesus and here's the coolest part now we have that same power to resist the influence of the snake through jesus we're not in slavery anymore to that